Okay, well, let's see here. This morning, uh, if you would, I, I know we've already kind of hinted at it, but if you would turn in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 99. If you don't have a Bible, maybe you don't own a Bible, there are Bibles on the back table. Uh, we'd love for you to take one home with you and make that yours. Um, today we begin the first, like I said, of, of a six-week series on the attributes of God. And each week we're going to be looking at a different chapter from the book of Psalms and then considering one of God's attributes, one of his characteristics, his, his traits in light of that psalm. And uh, the, the reason we're doing this series isn't because we're, we're simply trying to fill six weeks in between Easter and summer. Uh, the reason we're doing this series is because the most important thing that any of us can do is pursue knowing God, understanding who he is and what he is like, and then from that information, then trusting and serving and worshiping him. Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 through 24 says this, Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord. For those of us who call ourselves Christians, our most cherished prize and our most zealous pursuit ought to be knowing and understanding who God is, what he's done, what he is like. And as theologian A.W. Pink once wrote, the foundation of this knowledge, the foundation of all true knowledge of God comes from a clear mental apprehension of God's perfect attributes as revealed in the Bible, in Scripture. So this is the reason why we're doing a six-week series. And six weeks won't even come close to tapping it out. But we're doing a six-week series on the attributes of God. We want to better know and understand the God of the universe who loves us and who saves us. We want to understand him the best we can because we cannot truly trust him or serve him or worship him if we don't to the best of our ability and as revealed in Scripture if we don't know Him and understand Him. So next week, um, we've, been, we've been preaching, uh, not preaching, we've been posting the, the preaching calendar on the back of your bulletin and you'll see that next week we're going to be looking at the knowledge of God as we consider the vastness of His intellect and the unsearchable depths of His wise resources and then we'll be looking at the sovereignty of God as we consider his absolute authority and his glorious control over all things. And then we'll be looking at the wrath of God. You won't want to miss that one. And then the grace of God. You definitely won't want to miss that one. And then the love of God. All of this in an effort to better know him and understand him so that we can better worship him. And this morning, uh, quite a daunting attribute to begin our series with, we're going to be looking at the holiness of God. And for many of us, probably the first thing that comes to mind when we think of God's 
holiness is moral purity or maybe unspeakable, indescribable beauty. And while both of those things are absolutely contained within this idea, this concept of God's holiness, this attribute, there is more to this attribute than merely purity and beauty. The Hebrew word for holy literally means to be completely set apart, to be completely separate, to be distinct and distinguished from all other persons, places, or things. To be holy is to be incomparably unique, set apart from everything else. But still, there's even more to this idea of God's attribute of holiness because God is not just holy. According to Scripture, He is holy, holy, holy. Only once in Scripture is an attribute of God elevated to the third degree. It's holiness. He is set apart, set apart, set apart. He is separate, separate, separate. He is distinct, distinct, distinct. He is his own category. He is his own league entirely. Nothing, no one can compare. He is supremely and exclusively God. And this is where the word holy almost serves as a synonym for deity, for God. To to say that God is holy is essentially to say that God is God. The holiness of God, though, is, you know, it's among the attributes. It's among his attributes of God, uh, the, the attributes of God that most ruffles our feathers, And I think that that's evidence today in the fact that most Christians and many, many churches don't even even talk about the holiness of God. We've got all the verses about God's attributes of love and grace memorized and, and written on banners in our worship halls. But as far as holiness goes, it's not something that many of us even really consider Not many people are waking up early in the morning to meditate on God's intrinsic, eternal, pure, and beautiful otherness, distinction. Not many of us are beginning our day with a a cup of tea and a a scone as we contemplate that the holiness of God is like an all-consuming fire that will incinerate Everything in his path that is marked by sin and corruption and unrighteousness. And because many of us don't ponder it in our day, we we, we don't begin our day that way, we're not contemplating it regularly, the awesome, terrifying holiness of God. Because we're not pondering it, we're not really, many of us, taking it seriously which may be one of the reasons why so many professed Christians in so many professed churches display more of an apathetic casualness toward God 
rather than an awestruck reverence and rightful, righteous fear. Not many of us then, as a result, take very seriously God's command in 1 Peter 1.16. We read it this morning. To be holy as I am holy is his command to us. Not many take it seriously that God's solemn promise in Hebrews chapter 12 is this, that without holiness, without being holy as he is holy, we will not see the Lord. Holiness in us is the evidence that we have been saved by him. It's the evidence. And I fear that if we were to listen to many of our conversations at work or at school, the things that we laugh at, the things that we say, the things we offer to our friends in the locker room, or around the water cooler. I wonder if we would step back, if we could just listen to those things that we say on the regular, if we could step back, if we would step back and say, wow, wow, that person is holy as God is holy. You can see, you can hear it in every word he or she speaks. If you were to examine your internet search history, the things that you type in, and the sites that you visit Would any of us think, if we could look at your internet search history on your phone, would we think, wow, this person is certainly holy as God is holy? If we were to examine each other's checkbooks, the things we spend money on, would we think, wow, these people are holy as God is holy, set apart, distinct from the world, different Unique. Every single one of us in this room stands to benefit, I believe, from pondering and and being reminded of the holiness of God this morning. His, His people must be holy. We must be set apart in the way that we spend our money. We must be set apart in what we watch on Netflix. We must be pure in thought and and, and the words we speak and the, the deeds we do. The sobering truth behind Hebrews 12 is that if we possess no evidence of holiness in our lives right now, we ought not to have a lot of confidence that we will dwell in holiness with him in the future. If we display none of it now, that's problematic. Only when we're reminded of the holiness of God will we discover, I promise there's joy in this today, (laughs) will we rediscover the reverence for God that leads us to flee from idolatry and into awestruck wonder and worship of his son. Before... um, before I read this morning, it would, it, I think it would be appropriate if I prayed, would you join me in prayer? Father, you are holy. Jesus, you are holy. Spirit, you are holy. You're holy, holy, holy. Please reveal to me and my brothers and sisters in this place 
the ways in which we've minimized this attribute of yours. I pray that you'd convict us for the ways in which we've lowered you and made you to be like us when you are not like us. You are God, greatly to be praised. Lord, give us minds to comprehend your holiness and hearts to cherish it. And make us this day holy as you are holy. And we can pray this with confidence, knowing that you hear and that you'll answer because Jesus died in our unholy place so that, so that our prayers could be brought before you. So we trust that you will answer this according to your promise in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this morning I'd like to break our passage up into two parts. Two parts, two points. One point for each part. We're going to first read Psalm 99, verses 1 through 5. I don't normally like to do this, but I think it's going to be fitting today to to divide it. We're going to read Psalm 99, 1 through 5, and then we're going to consider point number one, the exalted holiness of God. And then, after a time, uh, we'll we'll continue. We're going to read verses 6 through 9, and we're going to consider point number two, the miracle that an exalted holy God is mindful of us. So let me say that again. Point number one is going to be the exalted holiness of God as we examine verses one through five. And point number two is going to be the miracle that an an exalted holy God is mindful of us. The miracle that it is that he is mindful of us. So let me read verses one through five from Psalm 99. If you have your Bible, go ahead and follow along with me. The Lord reigns. Let the peoples tremble. He sits enthroned upon the cherubim. Let the earth quake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted over all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. The king in his might loves justice. You have established equity. You have executed justice and righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool. Holy is he. This is the word of the Lord. In Isaiah uh, chapter 6, we read the story of the prophet Isaiah, who is arguably the most righteous man in all Israel. In Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah is given a vision of the Lord. It's just a vision. It's not an actual glimpse of God, such that, you know, that Moses had on Sinai of, of, of the Lord's backside. It's not that. It's a vision. And in this vision, uh, Isaiah sees the Lord seated on a throne. He is high and lifted up, and the train, the, the veil, the back fabric of the robe fills the entire temple inch to inch. And standing, hovering above the throne of God are the seraphim. They are, it's a host of angelic creatures, and each one is calling out to the next in this unified time of worship, crying out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. Now remember, this is just a vision. 
Isaiah is not seeing this actually, physically. It's just a vision. Nevertheless, Isaiah's response to what he sees tells us something about the power of God's holiness. All of a sudden, Isaiah finds himself in the midst of the utterly perfect, pure and beautiful, glorious and majestic God, and Isaiah wants to die. In an instant, in the presence of pure perfection, Isaiah becomes agonizingly aware of how impure and imperfect he is in his sin. He literally cries out, Woe is me, for I am undone. I am lost. I am a mere mortal. I am sinful and blemished. I am not like you, Lord. You are not like me. One glimpse of a vision of God's holiness and Isaiah the righteous prophet feels like a grain of sand on the surface of the sun. The word he uses, I am undone, literally means to disintegrate, to be pulled apart at the seams, returning to the dust from which he was created. In the awesome presence of the holy God, who can stand? We sang it this morning, only thou art holy. There is none beside thee, perfect in power, in love, in purity. 1 Samuel 2.2, there is no one like the Lord. No, no one holy like the Lord, excuse me. There is none besides you. And the first half of this psalm, verses 1 through 5, serve to illustrate a bit more of that exalted, kingly holiness which God alone possesses. Listen to the language the psalmist uses. The Lord reigns. He sits enthroned on the cherubim. The cherubim were the figurines, the angelic figurines that were mounted on top of the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of God's presence in the Old Testament. God's presence dwelled in between the cherubim. The Ark was located in the Holy of Holies in the tabernacle, and and only one high priest could go in once a year after making serious perfection for his own sin. And according to some Hebrew tradition, those high priests would even have to tie a rope around their waist before they went into the Holy of Holies amongst the cherubim upon which the, the Lord's presence sat because if they had unrepentant sin or, or anything whatsoever of blemish, they would fall down dead and the other priests could pull them out. That's just tradition. That's not in scripture, but it's rumored that that's what would happen. That's how serious the presence, the holy presence of the Lord seated upon the cherubim and throned on the cherubim is. The psalmist continues in verse two that the Lord is great in Zion. Old Testament Zion would have been Jerusalem, the the Israelite nation, the people of God, and now includes the the church, the the people of God, now present day, us. We are included in this, in Zion, and and of course, the Zion, that's New Jerusalem, the great city that that is to come when Jesus comes to consummate all that he has redeemed. That's included too. The Lord is exalted over all the people's 
Keep reading. The king in his might, listen to this exalted, kingly, holy language, he establishes and executes justice. Because the Lord is, he's not only set apart, he's not only holy in his magnitude, he's holy in his morality. He's not only a king, he's a good king. The only truly, unequivocally good king. He alone possesses what a lot of commentators say is this, absolute might combined with absolute right. Rightness, uprightness, moral goodness, purity. Absolute might and absolute right are found in Yahweh. Holy is he, verse 5. Church, the Lord our God is a good king. He is not like us. He is high and lifted up over and above all things. His kingdom reign has no limits, no borders, no boundaries. He presides over all peoples, all places, at all times. Church, all continents, get this in your head, all planets, all galaxies, and every microscopic molecule in between. He is as great as he is awesome. He is infinite in power and in righteousness and in perfection. Church, his ways are higher. His thoughts are deeper. His reach is wider. His hold is stronger. His glory is weightier. His goodness is sweeter. His purity is wider. His beauty is brighter. Luke 1:49. Holy is his name. The big idea that I want us to see in verses 1 through 5 is this. He is not like us. He reigns. We do not. We think we order our lives. We do not. He does. He is the creator. We are the created. He is infinite. We are limited in power, in understanding, in ability. He is righteous. And brothers and sisters, we are, every one of us, no matter how clean and moral and good-mannered we appear on the outside, we are unrighteous in and of ourselves. Even our good morals, our good behavior in and of ourselves is lived out to our own pride and glory and self-righteousness, which is absolute idolatry. In and of ourselves, we, each of us, have turned our own way. He is spotless, but we are stained with iniquity. He is whole, but we are splintered. He is not like us. We are not his peers. We do not hold equal sway. We do not look at him eye to eye. And it is dangerous territory when we forget this. It is dangerous territory when we presume upon God's holiness when we treat the Holy One of Heaven as if He were common from the earth. In 2 Samuel chapter 6, 
some servants, some of the servants of King David were foolishly transporting the ark, the sacred ark of God's presence to Jerusalem on a rickety cart which God had warned thousands of times over that is not how you transport the ark of my presence. Only a Kohathite is supposed to oversee this process. It was all wrong. And as the ark began to topple on this cart, an Israelite man named Uzzah reached out his hand to steady the ark of God. And it says that the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah and God struck him down because of his error and he died there beside the ark of God. These are the stories in the Bible that leave a bad taste in our mouth. These are the stories, these are the conversations we have with our dentists about the battle of Jericho or the, the, the battle of uh, King Jehoshaphat in Second Chronicles 20. These are the stories, right? The stories of the flood, Ananias and Sapphira. When we step back and we say, whoa, God, whoa, isn't that a little harsh? Isn't that a little cruel? We kind of put the blame on God for being a holy God. It's, it's not too dissimilar for you know, blaming a bear at the zoo when an, when an idiot spectator with all of the signs up and the fence and the zookeepers saying keep out decides to climb the fence and go in and pet the bear, do we blame the bear for mauling the spectator? No. We blame the casualness of the fool who did that. I, uh, Uzzah was a casualty of his own casualness. The idea that God was holy had become so familiar and old hat to him that Uzzah lost essentially reverence for God and God's property and his conduct followed suit. And I cannot help as I read through this psalm and I consider the story of Uzzah and Ananias and Sapphira who just came in and they were giving money to the church, they're like, yeah, this is all the money that we have and it wasn't and they were struck down. And I can't help, and church, maybe you can resonate with me, of all of the times that I have come in to worship the, the Lord and I've just mocked him with the lack of reverence with the lack of sincerity, with a divided heart. That I've dragged the Holy Spirit in my house from room to room following my wife and starting a fight over something foolish or like I this week just lost utter and complete control with my son. Holy Spirit, I pray you would show us how we are making a mockery of your holiness. We might say that we revere the Lord as I do often. We might say that he's awesome and holy. We might sing these songs, but what, what do our actions say? A proper beholding of God's holiness is absolutely critical. There's grave danger when we treat him who is holy as if he were not. And 
there's great danger when we treat what is not holy, common things, as if they were holy. That's the definition of idolatry. What is the, the appropriate response to such a holy God? Reverence, fear, and awe. Let the peoples tremble, the psalmist writes. Let the earth even quake. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Exalt the Lord our God. Worship at his footstool, not at his feet. The proper response to such holiness is reverent fear and trembling. Even Mount Everest should shake. Even the Grand Canyon should cry out because it's just a thimble in comparison to the presence of such an awesome God. But in each of our own way, it's not just me, I know you know this, we have all refused to give God in some way, shape, or form the reverence he is due. From the Garden of Eden onward, this has been the epidemic. Adam and Eve refused to give God the glory due to his holiness. They followed their own temptations, the words of the serpent, that they would be like God. And look at the absolute havoc that we have been walking in. And each of us would have done the same thing because we do every single day. We have all, according to Romans 1, worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. Whether that creature is ourself or a spouse or an idol on TV or this, that, or the other, we've all worshipped a creature rather than the holy creator. And it is absolutely nothing but a miracle that we can draw near to this God, that he is mindful of us didn't realize my time here, so I'm going to clip just for a minute. Uh, let's look at verses 6 through 9. The miracle, point number 2, that an exalted and holy God is even mindful of us. At first glance, there may not be anything miraculous about verses 6 through 9, but we've got to see there is a miracle here. We've got to see that in light of God's exalted holiness that we've just spent a moment on, that it is nothing less than a miracle that anyone or anything less than perfect, exalted holiness, and that is all of us, anything that is unexalted or unholy has no right to draw near the throne. Listen to the language in the second half of Psalm 99, Moses and Aaron and Samuel. These are three faithful and fruitful yet very flawed men. Flawed. They called upon the Lord, it says, and he answered them. He spoke to them, verse 7. A statute he gave them. We looked at this a little bit last week when Pastor Ronnie, you know, he, he, he gave us, uh, not Pastor Ronnie, but God gave these guys in verse 7 a law, a rule that would guide them into pure happiness and joy. Love me, Israel, and love your neighbor as yourself. Those are the same guiding commandments that guide the church today. He gave them a rule to guide them to himself and into great flourishing and happiness. Oh, Lord, our God, you answered them. Verse 8, these men called out, these flawed men called out to you, these unholy men, and you answered them. And then he goes on, you are a forgiving God to them. 
but an avenger of their wrongdoings. The holy and righteous transcendent God of verses 1 through 5, the God who is not like us in any way, is the God who is mercifully mindful of his created people in verses 6 through 9. He answers their calls for help. And so the big idea that I just I want to get to right now so we don't miss it, the big idea in point number 2 in verses 6 through 9 that I want us to see is that though he is not like us in any respect, he is yet mindful of us in every respect. The all-powerful, all-sufficient creator of the universe who had every right to leave us in the death of our trespasses and to just let us rot back into the dust of the earth, lost and gone forever. The same God who had every right to do this is miraculously mindful of us and is this morning. Even our, in our rebellion, he makes himself known to us. He sprinkles the evidence of his reality all throughout creation. Have you ever seen Mount, uh, Mount Rainier, Mount, Mount Everest, pictures of these places, the Amazon, the Grand Canyon, Yellowstone? Oh, my God. He sprinkles evidence of his reality all throughout creation that we might see him. He showers our unbelieving world around us with limitless mercies every day. Medicine and food and safe travel and loving friends and air in our lungs. He gives us rules to obey for our own happiness and flourishing. His command to Adam and Eve in the garden to abstain from the forbidden fruit was for their flourishing, that they would trust God and honor God in all things. His command to the tribe of Israel to be a people set apart in the world was for their flourishing. Even the weird commands that he gave them were for, was for their flourishing. And church, his command to us this morning to be holy as he is holy is for our flourishing And yet, if you can relate with me in this, how many of us, day after day and week after week and year after year, make a habit of, of, of shortcutting or even just ignoring Jesus' command to seek his kingdom and his righteousness first? How many of us ignore the command of Hebrews 12:2 to cast off every weight and sin? which clings so closely and keeps us from running the race of our faith? Or how many of us strive to obey these commands in our own strength for our own glory and thus nullify the whole bit of it? Look at what I've done, Lord. Now you have to bless me. Save us from that, Lord. And yet still, even in our disobedience and our self-righteous obedience, God is somehow mercifully, miraculously mindful of us. So much so that this God who is not like us, church, became like us. He lowered himself to us. See, he couldn't just be united with an unholy people. A holy God cannot be united with an unholy people, so he needed to make his people holy. And so he made Jesus, who never sinned, 
who was perfectly holy and righteous and blameless to become our sin and die on the cross that we deserve so that we unholy, unrighteous sinners could become the very righteousness of God in Christ so that we would be like him. This God who is not like us desired that we would be like him, holy, spotless, pure, beautiful, eternal, distinct. And now he joyfully commands us for our own flourishing, be holy, be holy as I am holy. I'll close with this because I'm, I'm, I'm longer than I wanted to be. In what ways are we flirting, are you flirting with the casualty of casualness? In what ways, brother or sister, have you drifted into irreverence? Maybe unwittingly, unknowingly, but the Holy Spirit is now speaking to your heart right now that, man, your walk with him is marked way more by ease and comfort and casual than it is raw awe and fear and joyful trembling and reverence. Consider the way that you spend your finances on a daily basis. Consider the things that you think are funny on Netflix. Consider what you're bringing the Holy Spirit of God into the living room with you to watch. I don't know if that was proper English, but I think you follow me on that one. In that moment when you're up in the morning, husbands, and your wife is there if you're married, and consider the Holy, Holy Spirit who is within you as you go to lead her and wash her in the Word. Your kids, if you have children, your coworkers, your Timothys. Are we too casual with this holy God? I know I am. Forgive me, Lord. When we rightly reflect on God's awesome holiness, we are rightly filled with awestruck reverence. In Isaiah 66, 2, I'll close with this. This is God speaking. He said, and these are the ones whom I look on with favor, those who are humble and contrite in spirit and who tremble at my word. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word that you inspired by your most holy spirit. I pray that somehow in all of your mercy that at least the reading of this scripture this morning would have been profitable to your people and I, I know that it was profitable to your people. Um, forgive us for casualness. Strike our hearts, Lord, and remind us of, show us ways in our lives that are grievous to you that, that, that are reminiscent of Ananias and Sapphira and Uzzah. And Lord, bring us back to a reverence that is um, honoring to you. In Jesus' name, amen.